Hello, and welcome back to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast. Today, we've been talking about the consumer and retail landscape, and we have with us Douglas Trauber, Global Head of Consumer and Retail here at RBC, and Hugh Paisley, Co-Head of U.S. Consumer and Retail. And as always, I'm joined by Larry Grafstein, Deputy Chairman of Global Investment Banking. So, gentlemen, why don't we get back into it and maybe start with you, Douglas. Let's talk about some specific areas of consumer and retail where you really think there's going to be heightened levels of activity from our clients. And I know you, you know, just given the conversations you've been having and then we've been out there having with your client base, feels like there are some areas that should experience some good deal growth. Thank you, Vito. Let me start, uh, and then I'll turn to Hugh, because again, uh, the a couple sectors. One, because there's been some activity in where it's going from here in 23, we mentioned grocery, still a highly fragmented sector. We had two deals last year. One is still in the market, Kroger, Albertsons, which uh, catalyzed another deal, which if that gets closed, which was CNS Wholesale buying the cast-off stores. And there was a third deal. That deal, as I mentioned before, was a deal that was really focused on driving efficiencies to enable them to become more competitive with the big three. Within the same sector, RBC sold a regional top 10 grocer called Southeastern Grocers, known as Winn-Dixie in the South. And we sold it to Aldi. Aldi is a global leader in food retail. It's a one of the most prolific in terms of its box count in the U.S., 2,500. And this was a story about trying to be competitive, but trying to accelerate growth, they had an opportunity to buy a business with 400 units. So if you take those into 24, as we are through and we have more visibility into the environment, I think you'll see additional counter actions to some of the deals we've already seen. And I think under the cover, we're seeing some of that where how can I, for the differentiated grocer, how can I get more boxes for those that want to grow regionally, where can I acquire? And and we had two deals like that prior to the last couple of years as well. So I think that's one area of growth in M&A that will continue. Convenience as well would follow the same pattern. I think there is a, a view of, and no one has to crystal ball, of where does this utopian performance sort of decline? And I mean that by saying CPG or, or cents per gallon margins are very high, and they've been high since for the last several years. It's driven significant cash flow. It's allowing regional players that are, are strong to think about whether now might be a, a better time in a good environment, in a better market environment to sell. So those two sectors, I think you're going to see continued consolidation, and they're the two most fragmented uh, sectors. There's a third, and then I'll turn it over to Hugh, which is the, the fallen angels. So if you go back to COVID and in, in pre-COVID, we had a pr- prolific period of IPOs in e-commerce companies. Those, and, and most of those were e- easier companies to build, um, less capital-intensive, apparel-oriented, technology-focused, uh, and some a little bit more so from a delivery perspective. I think as we move forward and we think about capabilities and we get, again, seasoned market values so that we know where those really are settling out, I think you'll see more activity in that space on the corporate side as well. And maybe on the services and where sort of the the growth side of, of retail, I'll turn it over to Hugh. Again, I keep saying I feel like a broken record, but in specialty, it really depends on which segment you're in in terms of the trends. But I think there's two primary drivers, and I'll, I'll break it out into buckets, of greater M&A volumes. And I think that that comes from the corporates and from the financial sponsors. I think from the corporates, you know, if you really think about we're in 24, 
pre-COVID as a year, 2019 was five years ago, there's much more greater focus and greater certainty on the areas of where they need to win. And then there's an honest assessment within their portfolios of what's not consistent with those objectives. And so, you know, we saw a number of disposals, you know, from corporates over the course of 23. We expect a continuation of that. We also expect to see greater focus and energy around investing behind the core. Um, And that might be in the case of capabilities, that might be in categories, and certainly thinking through demographic trends to get ahead of where the puck is going. We also see really for the need of synergies to drive additional cash flow to increase investment um, and where they can make organic, uh, you know, organic investments. Let's talk a little bit about an issue that is common to all industries, but is relevant as well to consumer and retail, which is obviously the antitrust scrutiny, enhanced antitrust scrutiny that we see out of Washington, out of the FTC, out of the DOJ. And we know that your industries are highly competitive, uh, as you both said, somewhat fragmented, uh, and it's and, and tough tough business when you think about the types of conditions that retailers have had to react to just in the last few years. It, it's quite extraordinary. But when it comes to transactions, talk a little bit to us about how uh, how the atmosphere, the regulatory atmosphere in Washington around deals, factors into the thinking of some of your clients. I'm sure it's more relevant for some than others. And maybe, guys, as you think about that, I'd highlight a point for the audience here, which is when we look at sort of the proportion of deals that are consumer and retail back in 23, I think 11% of the transaction volume in terms of dollar volume of deals came from consumer and retail. And I talked about energy and healthcare being the largest sectors, but only about 3% of the $10 billion plus deals came from consumer and retail. So clearly they were more prevalent in other sectors. I think the concern as we look at it is in some cases, the FTC and DOJ are going after more strategies where folks are rolling up and consolidating and not just simply looking at the largest players. And so when it's impacting the consumer, they have a heightened interest. So we'd love to hear your perspective. It's a terrific question, and um, I'll take it from a couple points. One is, is we always think historically what is the FTC's focus is to make sure that consumers are protected, that prices stay low, and that you don't uh, reduce competition. They've added an element to say, you know, let me make sure that labor and employees also are competitive and are well focused on. There's a long history in retail, and this goes back to really the, what I had said before about retail Darwinism, where in sectors you get to one, two, three, four players, and what happens to the protection. The scrutiny over the last over this administration, we think, is heightened. And we think it's in some ways, and I'll talk about the client, maybe too much so, such that they haven't broadened the definition in certain areas. And as a consequence of that, are making decisions that may not be in the best interest of consumers. Companies that we talk to today have two issues, and they are not entering into deals because they see the scrutiny, and they are not entering into deals because unless it's absolutely deliberate, absolute synergized and required, they don't want to wait 12 to 18 months for a deal to close. So there needs to be a better approach 
to that. And I think because of that, and if we start to see other deals get through, i.e. a Kroger-Albertsons, I think you're going to see more activity. I was just having a conversation this past week where a client wanted to get on the phone with an FTC counsel to get some answers on something that actually did get through and how did it get through. So I personally think that clients are very deliberate into not entering into a deal that they think is going to be a problem. Let me give you an example of one going backwards. And this goes to the change environment and definition. I think 2017, Walgreens uh, announced that they were going to acquire Rite Aid. That deal in its totality was blocked. You had three players left. You had two dominant players in Walgreens and CVS, and you had Rite Aid. As a consequence of not being able to get that deal done, they split up the company, allowed it part, part of it to be sold, and you were left with a public company that was undercapitalized, inferior in m- most every way to the other two, and you can see what's happened to that business subsequent. There's enough competition across retail to keep and, in fact, to drive value to take it lower. Take the Kroger-Albertsons deal. That's been in the FTC for over a year. Logically so, make sure that we protect consumers. The question there is, can I broaden the definition? So in that case, I'm a grocer. Historically, Walmart, Aldi, discounters weren't included in that definition, let alone you know the, the presence, even though it's small, of what Amazon can do. What we know is Kroger has invested for 15 years in price to, to close the gap with Walmart. The FTC is focused on, if, if you do that, the focus will go away from, from that, that, that focus. So we sometimes see with the DOJ and, and the FTC, they sometimes apply you know, stricter scrutiny to high-profile companies. And consumer companies, by definition, are known to the public. And it's a signal the regulators want to send, or generally, maybe as a, as a political message sometimes, that they're being tough on, on antitrust. And, and we just saw recently the JetBlue Spirit merger was, uh, which again, we, we a fairly visible industry. The challenge to the deal was upheld by the court. And one of the parties to that has even said that they might have to do a restructuring as a result of that. So we understand that happens. We understand that factors into to boardrooms. But many of the sectors of your industry are, are still very fragmented and should sort of fit below the, the thresholds that, that attract scrutiny. But how much are you seeing the, the concern about you know, being made a public example, inhibiting activity, as opposed to some of the other things that you've mentioned about the need to, you know, to drive growth as pricing power is restricted. I think it's an, it's an inhibitor. Large companies that otherwise, they, take, they will take counsel views and it depends on how, what degree and what overlap and, you know, what those businesses are, who the, what the competitive environment is. But I do believe that M&A is constrained in this sector by the view that larger companies will be have more scrutiny. And it's more about the length of time and the, the, the logic that you're going to have to go into and most likely fight this in court. And so I do think, you know, and, the, and we can talk administrations too, you know, whether a Biden administration that is pro-labor and, you know, seems to have a little bit more scrutiny, I think that's, that's a little bit more preventative than maybe if you had a different administration. Douglas and Hugh, I think we always talk about the prevalence of the corporate buyers versus private equity buyers. And certainly in 23, we saw the strength of the corporates. And Douglas, as you highlighted, the balance sheets are in a good position. They feel, you know, they have cash, they're able to finance. 
And so I think corporates took advantage over private equity firms in 23. And, you know, where some of the private equity firms had capital constraints from a financing market availability perspective. And we saw corporates really pursue some transactions where they didn't have as much competition. How are you seeing it on a go forward basis? Do you see a balancing? Do you see the private equity firms as having sort of pent up demand in terms of capital to put the work in your sector? Are they looking more at distressed opportunities or strong growth opportunities? Would love your perspective on the markets. There's a lot of capital on the sideline in private equity, and there are big consumer-focused groups looking across. There has been a risk-off appetite in certain parts of retail for the logical reasons of where the growth is, the competitive dynamics within certain sectors, and the scale of the corporates that are in those sectors. I think for private equity, the influence is how I'm focused on either a a differentiated business that has a really good competitive advantage and can grow. Generally, I would argue that it's more about, it used to be more about, can I find an undervalued business that I can create more value to? And there are some of those. You're seeing one in the market today, you know, the rumored Macy's deal. There are examples where you might or might not see private equity. But I think for the most part, they are focused on growth areas that they have an exit and if they're going to buy it today and a corporate's not buying it today, I'm not sure a corporate's there tomorrow. So let me think about those that I might be able to uh, either make as a platform consolidation play and work and take public. Just to build on Douglas's comments, I mean, certainly where we've seen financial sponsors play consistently is where there's multi-unit growth stories, companies with proven economics, ability to transport and replicate at scale and white space uh, to grow. A lot of those investments, as we look backwards in 2023, required just equity checks and very little debt. And so that was not a constraint. Um, I think what we haven't seen, that as we look out over the next 12 or 18 months, is the larger businesses that might carry what was in the past four or five times leverage. Well, when interest rates were low, you could still buy multi-unit growth stories because the cash flows would work. The challenge when rates are high is that that interest burden absorbs a lot of the free cash flow that is used for investment. And so what that created is a disconnect in valuations. You know, I think that the second piece that Douglas raised was around exits. And so there's a lot more focus on exits. And what we've seen in retail over the, you know, over the last several decades is that there's a cycle of smaller companies being able to access public markets sooner, and then it flips back to larger companies. And I think what we've seen, you know, certainly over the course of um, after the the boom of activity that happened in 21, when interest rates were very low and a lot of small companies could access public markets, we see, you know, at least at the moment, a higher bar in terms of the size of company that can go public. And that's going to create just more recognition that, you know, if you are holding a portfolio company, and you've held it now for at least five years just to get through the COVID volatility, and things have now settled down, that that's going to create some activity on the sell side. And then I think buyers are looking for how to be more creative about buying to narrow that valuation gap. And that might mean that private equity firms roll a little bit more you know, into these investments to play for some of that upside for future. And I think that also there's a lot of smaller companies that, you know, kind of recognize that their exit is no longer an IPO. 
um, and that they may need to consolidate and be part of a roll-up to be bigger to eventually access public markets. Yeah, and that's a theme across industries of, of large private companies. The cost of private capital is more expensive um, in the last couple of years. And in consumer and uh, retail, you always have new concepts that are being financed by growth capital, some of which manage to very quickly become trendy and become more valuable. And those companies have to really calibrate the difficulties with the IPO market right now and think about their their medium and long-term ability to grow. Look, Hugh, I think the egg and Douglas, the exit point is tantamount. I would say that, you know, Hugh, you mentioned 21 being a peak year from an IPO perspective. When you look at 22 and 23, I mean, they were like effectively one-tenth the volume in terms of what you saw out there. And and the, the large names that did get out did not have the best performance. And I think that put a damper on the market. I do think there's a pent-up volume, as we've talked about, and we've used that word a lot, of businesses that are looking for exits. Hugh, you mentioned a little bit in terms of pivoting where the public markets might not be an alternative, pivoting to a sale. How much do you see that pressure increasing as we go into 24? Because I think... One of the things I'm noticing, and Larry and I were talking about this recently, is that I would say, especially our private equity clients, there's a fair bit more pressure to monetize certain assets this year and not wait for the optimal window. That's a great point, Vito. I mean, just building upon that is that, you know, when you look at the private equity business, you know, they do focus on closing out funds and raising new funds. And, you know, with the cost of capital increasing, the environment of raising new funds has become tougher. Funds are still being raised, but the bar is higher. And if you're sitting on a lot of investments from a previous fund that you haven't shown monetizations, that's where we're really seeing pressure to, you know, to come out, even if it's not necessarily the ideal exit time, time frame, but to show, show progress in terms of monetizing some of those investments within an older fund. You know, I think that that's, again, you know, as we start to see the volume of activity in 23, when you look back over the last couple of years, it was really hard to project your business. And so, you know, that was a preventative measure just in terms of being able to go out to market and, and really be scrutinized. And, you know, as we move into the second phase of diligence, you know, I think now you see several quarters of kind of a new trend line and you're able to project your business with a little bit more confidence. And so that's going to be another thing that's going to be a driver as we move into 24. And Hugh, just to maybe um, a little shout out for some of our internal RBC Capital Markets people, maybe uh, tell the listeners a little bit about how we're using RBC Elements and sort of some of their advanced artificial intelligence technology and, and analytics to really extract some meaningful data and implications for our clients just to help them position their businesses. It's a really important point. We've talked about AI, we've talked about predictive technologies, and we have um, internally a group of data scientists that sit in between investment banking and research that we've branded RBC Elements. And they're an incredibly valuable tool for a number of companies, both small and large, to really do an outside-in approach of what's happening in terms of overall web traffic on both an absolute and relative basis to competitors. You can track it regionally, you know, by state, by county, by demographic. And really, you can measure overall sentiment based on social media platforms 
And it really can create a very nice story. So even in categories where for macro reasons, you know, the trends are less obvious because of the the headwinds that either happen on the revenue side or on the gross profit margin side for no other reason than macroeconomic factors, the underlying consumer strength of the brand um, and receptivity of the value proposition becomes highlighted through that digital information. And look, I think for the audience, this just highlights that we're always trying to figure out how to best position our clients as they're pursuing a transaction and really trying to think of new and innovative ways to highlight how their businesses are performing and highlight the value that they're bringing to the consumers, to their clients and the like. And I would tell you, if you're interested in hearing more about RBC Elements, please reach out to us directly because I think some of the alternative data sets that they're using to provide unique data to our clients is quite ahead of of, uh, where a number of people are today. So we started off talking about the consumer, the frame of mind of the consumer in this market. And to some degree, consumers are affected by politics and the political environment, as well as geopolitical developments uh, that can affect things like the price of oil and the price of gas. And so one question for you, looking at at the overall atmosphere, the environment for the consumer, what do some of our more uh, sophisticated clients think about the impact of global events, generally the presidential and congressional elections coming up this year, How will that factor into their thinking about transactions and positioning themselves? When we look at it, and I think there's an ability to look a little bit uh, retrospectively because we've seen if we expect it to be a a Biden-Trump general election, we can look back at both administrations and see what happened. Our corporate clients expect potential heightened tensions between China and the U.S. post-election. And that's, you know, it's in the some of the scripts we're seeing. And what does that mean? Well, if you go backwards, it's already in some of the data today, but we also can see what happened before, which is tariffs and if they change and they go up and how that affects, in particular, obviously, imports from China, how that affects investment in the U.S. as a consequence. The geopolitical dynamic that you mentioned uh, agreed. I think it's an input dynamic. I think it's There's two elements to it. One is what happens to uh, inflationary factors like oil, and then what happens to markets, capital markets that can be closed or be volatile, depending on what happens in in various regions uh, in the world. So I think I I, I think they're watching, but anticipating what that might you know offer post election. Yeah, I think that there's two pieces to it. I mean, just to add on to what Douglas was saying, I think the first one is just the election. And and we talked a little bit about er, earlier about um, exits and just what that means for IPO windows. I mean, just by virtue of what retailers do, and there are certain windows, you know, particularly if you're selling goods versus a services company, where as you start to enter into Q4, it becomes tricky. That's only magnified by the fact that there's an election. So then you start to look at what 25 looks like and what that IPO calendar is. And then you balance that versus your need, desire, or want to monetize your existing business and what that time frame looks like. Because that IPO window doesn't allow for a full exit, but one that usually takes 18 or 24 months to fully realize. 
The second piece is around geopolitical and just what's happening uh, overseas. And we are just in very early stages of seeing what those shocks may do. I mean, what we're seeing in terms of the Red Sea and potential delays and higher costs on container shipments and what that can do for seasonal businesses. And so we're starting to see commentary come out from CEOs about that and concerns about that. But what that's also saying is that, again, if you have a business and you're looking to monetize, you've just gone through three years of volatility that were all COVID related. And now you see that, that you know the world continues to be volatile and expect the unexpected. And so that maybe that ideal window may or may not exist and that this is just now the new reality. And so you know, I think that you know, we've talked about normalization coming out of COVID. And I think normalization is that interest rates are higher. The consumer is doing what the consumer is doing. Global affairs, you know, there's uh, two significant wars that are happening abroad that are certainly capturing a lot of media. And so, you know, I think the question is really, how do I navigate this environment? How do I invest in this environment? And how do I exit in this environment? Gentlemen, I think it's been a great conversation today talking about the consumer and retail landscape and and what we're seeing. And certainly from your comments, from your recent conversations with clients and the positives that we heard about the fourth quarter of last year for their businesses, it does feel like the environment, you know, macroeconomic environment, their own business environment, feels like it's going to be a positive impact on sentiment going forward, both for the consumer and for the CEOs and boards that are running these companies. And so as a result, you know, I think we all feel like there's going to be an uptick in consumer and retail M&A. And there's a lot of factors there. Certainly, there's some continued headwinds, which we've talked about. But I think we're seeing a lot of that activity right now in our own pipeline. And I think it's going to continue on a go forward basis. So Larry, Douglas, Hugh, Thank you for the engaging conversation today and look forward to our next conversation. A pleasure chatting with all of you. Appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast. Join us for more analysis about what's moving the M&A markets in our next episode. If you'd like more information on the topics discussed today, please contact us directly or visit rbccm.com backslash strategic alternatives. This podcast was recorded on January 25th, 2024. If you're enjoying Strategic Alternatives, don't miss an episode. Subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please drop us a review or a comment. Thank you. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives. For disclosures, please visit www.rbccm.com disclosure.